Greetings this morning uh, from your sister church, Christ Bible Church in Roseville, Minnesota. Uh, when Jacob asked me to preach for you all this morning, uh, it's always kind of fun as a pastor because you can pick whatever you want. And what I've picked for us this morning is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. This is a passage that has become very important to me. It's a passage that I think encapsulates a lot of what the Lord has for his people. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to read the passage for us to begin this morning. I'll pray, and then we'll get into the text. The word of the Lord reads, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we pause this morning to thank you that you speak to us in your word, that in it we have a revelation of who you are and what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would speak to your people here this morning, that your spirit would be active among us, that you would impart life and knowledge and wisdom and enlightenment and hope through your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. What do you think is one of the main tactics that the evil one uses against you? That he uses against me or any believer? I can tell you that one of the main tactics that he uses is discouragement, intimidation. These are things that he uses all the time. The evil one wants you to lose heart, to feel like everything is hopeless and nothing you do is going to make any difference. Life is full of twists and turns, and sometimes, especially today, we can look out into the world, see how dark things are getting, see how evil this world is, and we can say, it's inevitable. We're going to lose. It's over. Why even give up anymore? Why even try anymore? We even have a term for it. We call, we call it being black-pilled. You take the black pill and you just despair and give up, throw your hands up. I can tell you that that is exactly what the evil one wants. The careful Bible reader knows, though, that such things are mere propaganda. They're lies. They're not true. We live in a day that could best be described in a lot of different ways. Some people like to talk about our day as if it is post-Christian. And I get what they mean by that. We're one of those weird civilizations that was very Christian at one point and is becoming even more or even less so all the time. But yet, there really is no such thing as a post-Christian world. Christ rose from the dead, that's not going to change, no matter who believes. 
If you were to ask me, well, how would I describe our day? I would describe it in two words, chaos and insanity. We live in a chaotic time, and we live in a time in which we have lost touch with reality. We sometimes forget this because we've gotten so used to being in this pot that's slowly getting warmer and warmer and warmer, but we really do live in an insane time. If you want to ask me more questions about that later, go ahead. But what do you call somebody who, is, who has lost touch with reality? You call them crazy. They can't tell what's true anymore. We are that as a people. We are not a rational people anymore. And I'm sure with this being 2024 and an election year, we're going to get more rational this year. Everything's going to go perfect. No one's going to get upset. Nothing's going to go wrong. And in our day, there are so many voices of despair inside the church, outside the church. Doom and gloom. The end of the world is coming. Take that black pill and give up. You can find such people on every side of the cultural and political divide. We have this seeming present and looming darkness peppered with cultural insanity, and it really does threaten to take our hearts all the time. But here I want you to think for a moment, with me just for a little bit, that when we think this way, we really don't know our history very well, especially our church history. I believe this is intentional. We've been taught to forget our history. But I want to remind you of something very important. The church of Jesus Christ has faced far darker times than we face today. She has faced far longer odds than you face today. And yet 2,000 years later, here she is. Bigger than she's ever been. Thriving and growing. To put it plainly, the demise of Christianity has been greatly overstated. Because Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and Christ is coming back. So Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians when only the smallest amount of people, the tiniest percentage of the greatest, um, the greatest political power ever at that time believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ at this time meant you invited persecution and even death into your life, that you would lose your closest friends and family. It was a dark time. At the beginning of this year, I, I heard a, a message from the late, uh, great R.C. Sproul, and he shared the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. So if you're going to have a kid, this would be a great name for your kid. Polycarp. Never hear that one. Polycarp was a leader in the early church, that first generation after the apostles. He actually studied under the apostle John. And in his 80s, he was arrested and threatened with death. There had been a string of executions of Christians in the Roman Empire at that time, and Polycarp was known to be a leader. So the crowd in the arena, after they killed some Christians, started chanting Polycarp's name. We want him. We want him next. We want him killed. They wanted his blood. Polycarp was then arrested. As he was brought into the arena, Christian witnesses said they heard a voice from heaven that came in and said, be strong, Polycarp, act like a man. Polycarp was then brought before the Roman official, and he was told to do two things if he wanted to save his life. First, he had to declare that Caesar was Lord. Polycarp, if you declare that Caesar is Lord, you can save your life. I know what you're thinking. There's certainly a sense in which Caesar was an earthly Lord, and Polycarp could have said that. But Polycarp knew that that's not what Caesar meant by the word, so he wouldn't say it. 
Second, Polycarp was instructed to say, away with the atheists, meaning the Christians. The Christians were called atheists. They didn't believe in God. They didn't believe in the Roman gods, so they were atheists. Polycarp, in his late 80s, pointed to the crowd of pagans who were chanting his name, and he said, away with those atheists. And so they brought out the kindling to put him to death and burn him alive, and they didn't even have to tie him to the pole. He said, I'll just go in. Is that man insane? Did he lose? He was executed in 155 AD. About 200 years later, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. Today, no one worships Caesar. No one worships the Greek and Roman gods. People are still worshiping Christ. Who won? The church faced much darker times. And she has conquered. She conquers not by her own might, but because Christ has promised her success. He has said the gates of hell cannot withstand an assault from the church. And so Paul writes this letter, not just to Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians was a circular letter that was supposed to go around to all the churches. And in these verses that we're going to go over today, he wants you to see hope. Hope in dark times. He wants to encourage us to know the power of God in Christ and the scope of that power in your inheritance. So Paul begins here by explaining his gratefulness and how he prays for his brothers and sisters in Christ. What is he praying for them? What does he want these early Christians to know? Listen to verses 17 and 18 again. That the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What does God, through the Apostle Paul, want for you? He wants you to have a spirit of wisdom. He wants you to have the knowledge of Christ and that your mind might be enlightened so that you might know your hope. Like if you've ever met somebody who's lost hope, it's a dark place to be. Christians must never be people who lose hope. The foundation of our hope is rooted in knowledge, wisdom, revelation, and enlightenment of knowing Christ. So listen very carefully here. We need to know Christ more. Paul's writing this to people who already know Christ in a saving way. He's writing to the saints. He's writing to the church. They've been saved. He says, now you need to know more the fullness of your hope. You need to know that God came in the flesh in Jesus Christ, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. They already knew him in a saving way, but they had to increase their knowledge of him. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. The disciple is just a word for student. It is to commit yourself to knowing more, to growing in the knowledge of your Savior. And I want to be very careful here. This does not mean that you need to become a theological nerd or egghead. Right? In fact, many theological nerds and eggheads I encounter are totally helpless and not helpful. But we all need to be learners, studying our Bibles to increase our knowledge of Christ. Why? Because your hope is not just in a set of facts. Your hope is in a person. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. The eternal word who made everything, sustains everything, owns everything, and is coming back for everything. 
This is the Jesus who is our hope, who we must know. So Paul's God-inspired prayer is that we might know Christ, who is our hope, and that this is fundamental to living in an age of despair and retreat. One of the greatest things you can do to maintain hope in a crazy year is make sure you're at church at every Sunday. Make sure the main voices you're hearing in your life are directing you back to your hope, not to despair. Christians are never to take the black pill. They are never to be defeatists. So Paul says, know your hope. What is the content of that hope? It's not just Jesus, but there's some specifics to what Jesus has done and will do. So what is your hope? We have two basic foundations for your hope here in Ephesians 1. God's immeasurable power in Christ, and second, your inheritance as the church. God's immeasurable power in Christ is one foundation, and your inheritance as the church is the second. So first, you need to see the power of God, not just in creating everything. God has made everything from the smallest molecule to the tallest mountain. He sustains everything. From the mighty oceans to the distant galaxies, we can all see the power of the creator God. Romans 1 tells us. Everyone sees it. And all of these creational wonders scream to us about the power and the glory of God. But that's not the power Paul has in mind here. He wants you to know the power of God in Christ. Everyone can see the power of God in creation. Only Christians really see the power of God in salvation. God is everyone's creator, but he is not everyone's savior. Only those who repent and believe. So listen to the content of this hope in verses 19 through 22. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. When I was writing this message this week, the, the one phrase that just jumped off the page to me again was, toward us who believe. I want you to know the immeasurable power of God towards us, you, Toward you who believe. For your benefit, God has directed his immeasurable power to you and me. If you want a foundation for hope today, I got nothing better than that. So Paul gives us three displays of God's immeasurable power toward us in Jesus Christ. Three of them. When things go wrong, when the darkness presses in, when someone wants you to despair... Remember these three things. Remember what the things are you are to be holding on to. This reminds me of a scene uh, from the Lord of the Rings. If you know me, everything reminds me of a scene from Lord of the Rings. If you haven't seen the movies, I'm going to quote R.C. Sproul again. What's wrong with you people? I, I, don't, I can't help you at this point. But basically the story is there's, there's two hobbits, they're little people, and one of them is charged with carrying what we could best describe as the weight of the, the world's sin. Right? And he's not strong enough to take it. He has a friend who's going with him to try to destroy it against impossible odds and pressing darkness upon him. They are weak. The evil seems strong. 
they are not, uh, they are betrayed constantly and they suffer great loss. And at one point, Sam, who's the helper of the main character, Frodo, he's trying to find the words to encourage his master. What can I say to you at this point? His master says to him, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it, Sam. And Sam replies to him, I know, it's all wrong. Everything's gone wrong. None of this makes any sense. But then he reminds them of the great stories that we often hear. And he tells them all of these great stories, people face great evil, and they all have chances of turning back. But they were holding on to something. And Frodo says, what are, they, what are we holding on to? And he says that there's some good in this world. And it's worth fighting for. As Christians, we can put more content into that. We're not just hoping in some vague improvement of the future. What motivates us to stand and to fight and to resist and to persevere in the faith? It's the power of God directed toward us in Christ in these three ways. First, God displays his power in Christ's resurrection from the dead. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If you want to know God's power, all you have to do is look at the empty tomb. The wages of sin is death. Your greatest enemy, my greatest enemy, is death. It haunts us. Entropy reigns over all of creation. Everything is decaying and falling apart all the time. This robs us of the joy of God's good creation. But God is a God of life and not of death. And Jesus himself is the fountain of that life. And so Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he stands before the tomb of Lazarus, and he says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And they're like, yeah, 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 we get that, Jesus. We know you're going to bring everyone back someday. And he says, no, 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 I'm the resurrection and the life now. And by a word of command, he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. This is a foreshadow of Christ's own resurrection and, our, and ours. Jesus died for us. He took death upon himself, and in doing so, he overthrew our greatest enemy. So much so that Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, says this about Jesus. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible. It was not possible for him to be held by it. Death couldn't hold Jesus. Death is not stronger than Jesus. Why could Polycarp say, I don't even need to tie me to this, just burn me alive, I'll take it. Why could he say that? Because he believed this. Oh death, where is your sting? If we truly believe that death has lost its sting, what can the world do to us? The answer is nothing. Second, we see the immeasurable power of God in Christ's ascension. Paul continues, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The power of God is seen not just in Jesus coming back to life, but also going up into heaven and sitting down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus said when he left his disciples that it was to his benefit that he would go up into heaven. Now, If you're like me, you read that, you're like, what are you talking about? I'd much rather have Jesus here right now. What does he mean by that? He's pointing back to the prophecy of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. 
the Son of Man, it says, would ascend to the right hand of Father. And from there, he would rule over everything and establish an eternal kingdom. And that this eternal kingdom would be directed toward us, toward the good of the church. And it gets even better. Our Savior not only reigns in heaven by the Father's side, but you and I are seated with him in heaven. If you flip just or a few verses down, Ephesians 2.6, Paul says this, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are united to Christ Jesus by grace through faith, then you are united with him in such a way that you are seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ right now. You want another foundation for hope? Here it is. The one who rules over absolutely everything at the right hand of the Father, you're in him in heaven right now. Third, you see the immeasurable power of God in Christ ruling over absolutely everything. Verse 21 and 22. And seated him there far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also the Jesus has all authority. He has all power and dominion. And I want you to really pay attention to this. It says, not just in the age to come, but also this age. Jesus won't have authority just in the future. He has it now. Right now. This age. He rules over absolutely everything. It says that his name is now the name that is the highest name. This means Jesus' name is higher than Caesar's. It's higher than Taylor Swift's. It's higher than Joe Biden's. It's higher than Donald Trump. It's higher than Vladimir Putin. None of their names come close to his. His is the highest because he possesses all authority in this age and the age to come. Paul is here citing Psalm 8, 6. It says this, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. And then it goes listing all these different things from creation. The point is clear. Jesus has authority over absolutely everything because everything has been placed under his feet. This age and the next one. Sometimes in an attempt to get out of how awkward this might make us feel, People want to just limit Jesus' authority to just, quote-unquote, spiritual things. Jesus only has authority over that which is spiritual or, or religious or non-physical. But that's not what the Bible says. Like, if you want to wrestle with me over this, let's go ahead. We'll wrestle after the service. Ephesians 1 makes it clear. This is what the church has taught for 2,000 years. When Jesus was on earth, he went around and he performed miracles to display his authority over every facet of life. He not only forgave people's sins, but he took their physical ailments and he healed them. He looked at a storm and he said, stop it. And his disciples looked at him and like, who has authority over storms? Jesus does. That's a physical thing. The risen Jesus at the Great Commission, he says the same thing. He looks at his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Not some authority, but all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. That's why you can do the Great Commission. Jesus has it all. Paul makes the same point in his sister letter to the Ephesians, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. 
He says this, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth are in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul's point, everything seen and unseen, it's Jesus's. Everything in heaven and on earth, it's Jesus's. This is everything, everything, not some things, everything. Right? All of it is his. Sometimes we want to argue about the authority of Christ we want to partition off his authority into some safe little spiritual box. If you're reading your Bible, you can't do it. You can't do it. The Bible will not let you limit Christ's authority to only what makes you and me comfortable. And this is why when you face trials and darkness in this life, you can have a sure foundation of hope. Because Jesus' authority just isn't for then, and for the non-physical, it's for the now too. And surely, we need to be clear on this, we don't see yet the fullness of Christ's authority worked out in this earth. We will one day. There's an already and a not yet tension here. But Christ rules over absolutely everything without exception. Christ rules over everything from education to farming, banking to government, family life to church life, the arts to athletics, morality to mathematics, all of it is underneath his universal reign and authority. And that is your hope. That is my hope. This is the immeasurable greatness of God's power displayed in Christ towards you and me. Now I'm about to sound like a really cheesy infomercial salesman, but wait, there's more. Foundation one of our hope is Christ's work and authority. The second is our secured inheritance. The idea of inheritance is a theme throughout the first two chapters of Ephesians. Verse 11, we read this. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 14, Christ is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Then in verse 18, we, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So what are the riches of our inheritance in the saints that is Christ's inheritance and also ours? Listen again to verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want us to, to meditate on this for a moment. Jesus is the cosmic Lord over absolutely everything in this age and the age to come. And this Jesus has given it, or has this, to the church, to you and me. Christ's authority is directed to the good of his body, the church. The church is described as his body, and that as his body, this universal Jesus fills us. He fills the church just as he fills every square inch of the universe. Jesus, who fills all, fills the church as it goes out to every square inch of the cosmos. So let me try to 
put this succinctly, all in all in all of Christ. All in all in all of Christ. He directs his universal authority to the benefit of the church in this age and the next throughout all of creation. What does that have to do with your inheritance? Everything. We are the body of the one who rules over everything and who owns everything. You are united to the one who owns everything. That means your inheritance is his inheritance. And so what is Christ? Everything. We, his saints, are a part of his inheritance, but the rest of the cosmos, as it is redeemed and remade, is his and yours. Again, we return to Colossians 1, verse 20. Paul ends that great passage on Christ and says, Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did Jesus die? I ask my kids this all the time. Why did Jesus die? For our sins. Yes and amen. Why did he have to die for our sins? Because on account of our sins, everything that God made and created good, God cursed. Everything. In order to fix everything, he has to deal with our sin. The blood of Christ's cross, it says here, is reconciling everything, not some things, in heaven and on earth, by the blood of his cross. Now to be very clear here, everything does not mean everyone who's ever lived is saved. What it means is that all types of things are being redeemed by the blood of his cross. The creation itself is being reconciled to its creator through the blood of its creator. So what is your inheritance? What is my inheritance? All of this. Like you're walking around this world, you're going through your daily life, Monday's coming, you're going to go to work, and what you often miss is that every square inch of this universe that your foot touches is yours in Christ. All the universe is your inheritance. From galaxy to galaxy, this is a blood-bought world. Jesus bought it with his blood. It's his inheritance, and you're united to him, so it's yours. The foundation of your hope is that Christ rules over everything. Everything belongs to him, and through him, the church is to go out into the whole cosmos now and to say that this is Christ and therefore yours by his blood. And so, Christian, what are you holding on to in the darkness of our present day? What hope do you have? Paul wants you to know these things. The immeasurable power and greatness of God displayed in the universal work and lordship of Jesus Christ as it is directed to you and for your inheritance. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, it's mine. The good news is not that Christ has authority only over that which is spiritual, but that Christ has authority over everything. So, one of my repeating messages wherever I go, wherever I preach, wherever I teach, is that you need to take Jesus out of that silly little secular cage we put him in and say, well, it's only for, it's only for the future and it's only for that which we call religious. No, Jesus has all of it. Me. It's mine. I made it. I sustain it. It was created for me. I'm redeeming it. And if you come to me by grace through faith, it'll be yours as well.
And so we need to rediscover this vision of the immeasurable and universal greatness of God in Christ toward the church, to you. Hold on to this Christ over everything. Something's going wrong in your personal life. Something's going wrong on the national stage. Whatever it is, the darkness is nothing compared to him. Hold on to this Jesus. Let's praise him this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you speak to us in your word. We thank you that in your word we see your greatness directed to unworthy sinners like us. Lord, we praise the work of Christ this morning. That he made all things, he sustains all things, and he is redeeming all things by the blood of his cross. May that be the hope that we cling to. May that be the foundation of our lives. And may we go into every square inch of the universe declaring the glories of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.